0: today on Wine Access Unfiltered. Hink is very involved.
1: She and I have done a lot of work on records together, and we've gone on a lot of vacations together. And I would say a lot of my love for wines, especially Super Tuscans, are from her because she is... Extremely knowledgeable, and I remember her talking to me 15 years ago when we started working together. Uh, that she was like, you know, I want to make my own wine one day. I want to be a sommelier. I want to like, I want to get my license. I want to, I want to go to France and learn and blah, blah blah. And this was, you know, she was selling out stadiums. Then I think I got a lot of my palate from from her.
0: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I am your host, Amanda McCrossen. I am here with Vanessa Conlin. So excited to be here. I know you are. <laughs> 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 this is this is a really interesting guy that we're going to be talking to today. This is Butch Walker. He is the man behind a lot of songs that would be familiar to you. Vanessa, I know you're a Panic! at the Disco fan. I am. Butch, you know, in addition to having a very successful career of his own, he also was the lead vocalist guitarist for The Marvelous Three, But he is notable for a lot of different reasons. Panic at the Disco, he wrote many songs for and and as well as uh, Avril Lavigne, Pink, Bowling for Soup. He's produced Green Day albums, Fall Out Boy albums. He also did a really cool cover. Of one of your favorite people, Tay Tay, Tay Tay, Mike Taylor
2: Swift. I love her too.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so he did a cover of one of her songs that ended up going viral. She heard it and then I think like brought him on the Grammys, which is pretty cool.
2: Wow, but amazing!
0: He's, he's had like an incredible career and a super interesting guy. And you, you do a little bit of internet research on him, and you you discover very quickly that he is not only very interesting but is multifaceted, multi talented, sort of a polymath of sorts. Like can really just do it all. His most recent endeavor is this sort of rock opera concept album called American Love Story, which you can watch in its entirety on YouTube, which is, I think, just super, super fascinating. Um, so we wanted to find a wine that I thought would not only satisfy him from a taste perspective, but would also, like, sort of match the the curiosity that I think he has inside. Kind of a
2: passion project type yeah. wine? Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
0: like something that I thought would, like, match an interesting guy. You know, anybody that's that multifaceted and it has that much going on is is going to appreciate a wine. I think that is goes a little bit deeper than just the normal tasting palette.
2: Absolutely. And I think we know uh, someone with big enough personality to match, uh, but just— <laughs> I think we know a few of those.
0: <laughs> True. So there were a few different people that I was thinking about, but one in particular that I really just gravitated to first.
2: And the wine happens to be delicious. So in uh, my opinion, I hope he likes yeah, it. Yeah, win-win.
0: Um, and he, and also he loves Napa Valley and, and Napa wine. The other wine was a little bit more on the surface. He, he mentioned that he loves bigger whites, So naturally, I gravitate towards, you know, bigger, viscous wines like Viognier or Oakier Chardonnays.
2: That was kind of where I was thinking. Where were you thinking? Same page. I mean, I wanted to throw something in front of him that was really going to be charming and delightful, but that he also Mm. would love based on what he described. So I, I think we chose well, but I'm curious to hear what he thinks.
0: I do too. And I'm very excited to drink both of these wines. So without any further ado, let's drink. We are here with Butch Walker. I'm super excited. We chatted earlier about some of your uh, many, many talents. There are a lot. I'm a huge fan
2: already. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much. Can't wait to learn more.
0: (laughs) I think, in a in a word, uh, interesting and beyond that, maybe a polymath, like that was the word that also came to mind. Oh, Um, so so incredibly multifaceted human being. And so we always try to choose wines that, that reflect not only your personal tastes, but also the person in general. So we, we chose two wines. You had a, a wonderful conversation with Laura, I think, about some of your preferences and, and entertained her with some great stories. But um, the, the one that spoke to me most, uh, I think, of these two wines is, is the Faimon. It's the red wine here. This is a a Cabernet from Napa Valley. We heard you loved Napa Cab. So that's, that was a start. I do. Um, Yeah. But you're, you know, you're a guy that uh, has worked with a lot of great people that has uh, an incredible career yourself and- we wanted the wine to be reflective of that. FAMON means handmade. Uh, and this is from a winemaker who is very famous for making some of the best wines in Napa Valley. He's associated with some really amazing projects. He was the protege of Michel Roland, who's a famous wine consultant. Mm-hmm. But this is his baby. This is what he does himself. And I think it's really reflective of his personality. He, you guys would probably get along. We haven't spoken you know, more than a few words thus far, but I think that you would be
2: kindred I was spirits. thinking the same thing. Yes. Benoit. Uh, yes. Benoit Chucat, winemaker behind this. Also full of personality and quite interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> and this is a single vineyard. This is
0: the Las Piedras Vineyard in St. Helena. So this is a, a, a pedigreed vineyard from Beckstoffer. So with that, I'll ask you, how do you like it?
1: <laughs> oh, it's great. It's excellent.
0: And I like that you're drinking it out of a wine tumbler.
1: It's great. It's very peppery. I'm terrible with like the terminology. I sound like the world's worst idiot when it comes to describing wine. Not at all. I just know I've got good taste apparently in it, <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't know how to describe it, you know?
0: Good taste, meaning you like expensive wines? Is yeah, that that's your, the, that's the unfortunate
1: that your- part. Yeah. <laughs> The minute like I've discovered um, what the difference was between just a cheap not so great wine and a really great wine is the day that my accountant started crying.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> I think like once you get into wine you find that price is definitely a factor but there's also some really great steals out there and I think once you start to understand your your palate yep. sometimes the wallet takes is a little happier with you but I will say it doesn't get easier your palate doesn't no. doesn't shift in that
2: in that way it doesn't it's hard to go backward Yeah, it's true. It's like unlearning a musical instrument, right? Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, it's like like getting your first guitar and it's a beginner guitar and it's harder to play and the action is weird and it doesn't, fret very easily and you're making chords and it's harder to get around on it. And then you pick up like a really nicely made guitar. And then all of a sudden you're, you're playing 10 times better already and inspired because it's, it's made better.
0: Yeah. I love that. analogy. That's a a beautiful analogy. (laughs) I love that.
1: Craftsmanship across the board with anything is probably, uh, that holds true.
2: You know,
0: what a perfect analogy. I love it. I don't think anybody's said that to date for me
2: but you talked about inspiration. So like you're in the studio, you're not feeling it. Like you need some inspiration. Is there a certain type of wine that, uh, that you go to, to get the juices flowing?
1: (laughs) Well, I I gotta be honest and it's not probably the answer you want to hear, but I'm, I can't really drink when I'm working because I'm kind of an escapist and an escape artist when it comes to drinking. I like to just kind (laughs) of, (laughs) <laughs> check out. Usually it's the opposite for me. I, I get done with a long day of using my brain all day in the studio and it's exhausted by normal business closing hours, you know, six or seven o'clock. I've been here since early morning. And um, next thing you know, I, I want to go home and crack open a bottle of wine. And that's usually what I do. And so that actually just makes me, makes me unwind and feel loose and, and less tense because I bottle up a lot of thoughts and a lot of, there's a lot of processing going on in my brain all day long. And especially when you're in a room full of musicians, if this room is packed with artists, there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of psychiatry (laughs) 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 and uh, dealing with egos and dealing with uh, people's frustrations, my frustrations and everything. So, so I get home and, and that's when my escape starts.
0: Yeah. And, and does wine sort of like does that wind you down or wind do you, down? Are you, does yeah. your, yeah. Just, <laughs> so your mind, your mind is able to relax a little bit.
1: Yeah. That's what, exactly what we call it is winding down. I just start with dinner, you know, whenever there's dinner at home, uh, then or, or dinner out, that's when I'll have a, a glass of wine. And then if I'm careful, not too many more, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not always careful. Yeah. <laughs> Only when I'm at home though. Okay. Any like uh going out and having to operate heavy machinery after leaving a <laughs> after leaving a restaurant. <laughs> no not so much.
0: What are you cooking at home when you're cooking?
1: My girl is always cooking. She cooks very healthy. I've got a lot of, of restrictions now that I'm fifty, it all hit really hard.
0: <laughs> yeah. In what way?
1: Everything started coming in at once, like you know cholesterol issues and high mercury and all this other stuff. And like, yeah, first thing I asked my doctor was, could I still drink wine? And so, so far they've told me yes. Good. The cooking is great. It's like, uh, uh, she cooks amazing. So it's like, um, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of vegetables because we have a garden. So some of it comes from there. And then, um, right now I've been on, I've had to like exile fish because of my mercury content, which is,
0: oh yeah. you
1: never know you have until you get blood checked for it. And it's like, that was a total bummer because I'm a massive fish eater and sushi yeah. lover and adventurous. Do
0: you remember when Jeremy Piven got mercury poisoning? That. <laughs> That's Didn't the only reason like, I know how that happens. He, like he had years to, ago, he was on Broadway doing something bow out and he show. bowed out because he got mercury poisoning. Yeah,
1: yeah you don't want to uh, underestimate it. And so... Uh, I'm sadly off of a lot of fish right now because of that because mm. I got off of meat, which was awful because I love eating everything. So I got off of meat in December and um uh, to help with my cholesterol and, and basically went plant based except for some fish. And now it's switched back to plant based and, and chicken.
0: Well oh, crap. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm really lucky because I'm a great eater and a shitty cook. So it's really good to have <laughs> someone that is uh, an amazing cook and it's uh, and is looking out for your best interest as well. So yeah. so
2: do you give much thought to pairing or do you just drink what you like?
1: Not really because I- I'm more of a, what time of day is it is what I'm going to drink, you know? <laughs> I mean, honestly, like outside on a warm day, I would way rather have a, a good white wine than a good red wine. Just because yeah. it's harder to enjoy something that's lukewarm and heavier, like a like a red can sit. Whereas if it's the right kind of white wine, then I'm super happy. I, you know, I just, I'm not a big day drinker. So, except for when I'm on vacation or on the weekends and- um, Or
2: on this podcast. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Let, let's not- <laughs>
2: Thank you for making an exception.
1: <laughs> exactly. I don't know what time this airs, but obviously- <laughs>
0: It's noon. It's noon. Um, well, <laughs> we did hear that you enjoyed a little white wines. Whites that were maybe on like the bigger side of things. So we went with kind of a classic Dumas uh, Chardonnay. So this is... this. this is I Chardonnay.
1: just sipped it and it's amazing.
0: Oh, good. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Well, especially since you're Zero eating so many... Zero regrets
1: about drinking that right now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, since you're eating so many vegetables and, uh, you know, cooking some leaner proteins, white wine is always are mostly preferable when you're pairing vegetables. They're really tricky to pair. Vegetables are not an easy way to go.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to get better about that, about like just being more conscious of what pairs better instead of just going to a bottle of Heights or a bottle of or mm. of, of whatever I've got at home that I love in the red department. I I, I think I'll probably start being more distinguished about it. Uh, that was my pact I made with myself when I hit the 5-0. Well,
0: that's a good pact. I will say this quarantine has really forced the issue with me. And I found that my... Wine fridge was not properly stocked for quarantine. So I had to bring in a lot of different things because I was eating a wide array of foods and I found uh, got to stock widely. Are you pretty balanced or did you find that you had to start bringing in more things?
1: So what would happen is whenever we had any sort of wine club situation, which which every time I go to Napa, I come back with several.
0: <laughs> You're not alone.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so the stock that comes to your house, you know, obviously you start realizing what you favor more when you start getting oversupplied with, uh, in this case, it's a lot of whites that were kind of just sitting dormant in the pantry. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't drink them as much. It's more just, I drink at dinner and then, and the PM hours. And so- it always just ends up favoring towards red. So now my goal is to obviously take a lot of these on my cross country uh, RV trip to our farm in Tennessee, uh, which is gonna be happening in July here coming up. Cool. I bought a place in kind of the country side of Tennessee, a little horse farm.
2: I read that you are gonna build a cellar at your at your place in Tennessee.
1: Um really excited to tackle that over July.
2: I always love going into people's cellars and seeing like what is the bottle that they walk you to first that's their oh, like yeah. their prized, you know, uh possession. So like is there one bottle that either you have or you'd like to have where when you have your cellar, you'll throw open door for your guest and be like this is this is my unicorn. This is this is yeah, exactly. This is my most prized bottle.
1: Well, I don't have any prized bottles at the moment. I'll definitely be collecting once I have a cellar. I have to, you know, I'm the worst because I'll just drink it.
2: No, that's the best. <laughs> <laughs> that's,
1: that's
2: actually the best.
1: <laughs> when there's a special occasion, you know, I'll go for like a, like a super Tuscan, like a Sasakaya or something mm. or whatever. Or if it's a, if it's a Napa one, um, one of my favorite wines, and it's not just because he's a good buddy of mine, but I, I really love Continuum.
2: Yeah, wow.
1: yeah. My buddy is uh is one of the is one of the Mondavi kids, and so uh,
0: which one? Uh, it's Carlo. Oh, you guys would be friends. You'd yeah, look, he's you'd my buddy. Would like be friends. <laughs> <laughs> that totally makes sense.
1: He's yeah. one of my favorite people, and I love that family. Actually, I love all the.
0: Yeah, I like all the kids. Well, they're kind of kindred spirits, I imagine. I mean, they're also incredibly talented in in many different ways. You know, they all have like lives outside of wine and are just have like all of these varied interests. I feel like that it's a good bind for you.
1: The, the last time. I, I went up and uh, came over to the Continuum Estate. I mean, obviously it's, they're just doing it a whole different way over there, right? It's like, it's yeah. they're, they're like in their own region and they're on their own mountain. And it's it's so crazy, uh, but it's beautiful. And and man, it's it's one of my favorites. I mean.
2: For those wines though that you love, are they mostly ones where you've had a personal experience at the winery or things that you've just found like, you know, ordering at a restaurant or given a gift? I'm trying
1: to think. Um, I mean, Mount Veeder, I, I love Mount Veeder. And that's a fun one. It's a it's obviously a, a more popular one and uh Schaefer I love. And I love cake bread. I mean, I know I'm not like these are not secrets. These are the ones that are kind of obviously have been big dogs. Well, they're
0: cl- I mean, they're classics. It's not even yeah. that they're secrets. I think they're there's just There's a classics. reason why they're known. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know what another one I really loved and the, and had a great experience at their winery was Vinecliff.
0: Oh yeah. Do you like their Chardonnay? I feel like that would be like in your wheelhouse.
1: It's really good. I love their cabs. I mean, gosh, there's a, there's a lot of them. I just uh I, I don't know where to start.
0: Yeah. But where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Georgia.
0: Yeah. Oh, we're in Georgia.
1: Yeah. Oh, I grew up in a North Georgia in a town called Cartersville. Pretty small at the time. Okay. Bigger yeah. now. It's almost become a suburb of Atlanta, but at the time, it was an hour outside of Atlanta.
0: Is that near Rome?
1: Yeah, I was born in Rome.
0: My sister went to Barry College.
1: <laughs> yeah, my dad's from Rome. Funny. Yeah, my dad's from Rome. Uh, I was born there. My, I started my first band out of Rome, Georgia. Oh cool. We moved to LA in 1988 together from Rome, Georgia.
0: Rome is the tiniest town I think I've ever been to in my life. I've I mean, never like, heard of it. I mean So so my we drove my sister down to college. You'll appreciate the story. We drove her down to college. I grew up outside of Philadelphia. We took a road trip down there and like, you know, the radio stations change. This is before, you know, Spotify. Um so the radio stations are changing as we drive down. And by the time we get like an hour outside of Rome, there's one station and the only thing (laughs) that's playing is this top radio station and people are calling in and selling their cars on this radio station and giving their phone number. They're like, I've got 1987 Dodge. My number is 707-550 and literally like over the phone. And I was like, this is the craziest shit Uh, I've ever seen. Yeah, It's a super cool town. She left after a semester, unfortunately, but it was a beautiful campus.
1: The college is beautiful there. Uh, Barnsley Gardens is a very popular spot that people go. It's like a, um, it's a golf course resort. I shot Mm -hmm. music videos uh, at Barnsley Gardens back in the day. My dad's last few years is like last year we spent Uh, hanging out a lot at Barnsley Gardens.
0: Were your parents in music?
1: My mom, she can play piano and sing amazingly. My dad, he always joked and said he couldn't even play the radio good. So he's like, a, <laughs> he was more obviously a comedian. Yeah. <laughs> he was not the uh, musical talent in the family as much as my mom. My yeah. mom definitely has that skill.
0: You play a lot of instruments, right?
1: I do. I'm kind of what I guess you call, they call it a jack of all trades and master of none. Guitar I learned growing up and I got pretty good at that, I guess. I got sort of um, what people consider a young hotshot gunslinger guitar player in on the, Uh you know, uh, on the L.A. uh, rock scene back in the day and in Atlanta. But that's, you know, I never got great at drums or keyboards or anything like that. But I still play them well enough now on records. If I need to be the the guy who's doing every instrument on the record for somebody uh, that I can get through it and make it somehow sound sort of believable.
2: (laughs) So where then on your journey did you start getting into wine? Was it like present in your house in Georgia? Was it after you moved to L.A.? You know, what was your first experience?
1: Being that I was still just kind of a rednecked, you know, 18 year old living in Hollywood for the first time, <laughs> it was the obvious choices. It was shitty beer, <laughs> had enough of that and bad liquor, and along the way. And then it didn't really come until the 90s. I went to visit my girl in uh, North Carolina where she was living and she was bartending at this killer restaurant. And I'd never really had a good bottle of. Or a good glass of anything. I just figured, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just pour it. Red is red. White is white. Whatever.
0: Well, at least you knew the colors.
1: <laughs> yeah, I knew the colors. That's something. But um, <laughs> kind of realized then. Oh, okay. And I don't. Even, I'm trying to remember what it what it was. It, if it was like a. But it was something that was really good. And I was like, oh, this is really, I can't afford this, but this is great. And it wasn't even like, I mean, it was probably $25 at the time. And I, and I yeah and I didn't have a pot to piss in and was living out of a van. So any wine was good wine to me the real turning point was when my band at the time in 1998 got signed to a record deal off of a single that was getting played all over the radio at the time and started really blowing up on alternative radio. And I uh, went up to, um, Woodstock, New York to a famous studio at the time. there called Bearsville where like Dylan and the band, uh, recorded a lot of their records and, and, um, and I was finishing the record there. And, uh, I really fell in love with the um, mixing engineer who came to mix the record there for us who was a legend. His name was Michael Barbiero and he had done records for Metallica and Guns N' Roses and all these big, like done, like they're big, big records. And uh, so he was a legend and still, he was still mixing records at the time. And it was his birthday and uh, he just kept going on and on about like, oh, do you like scotch? Uh, there's, a, there's this great, my favorite bottle is, you know, and it was like a Glenmorangie 18 or something. And I went to the local fancy, liquor store and it was his birthday and I bought him a bottle because I finally had made like my first like royalty check. I'd made my first like Mm -hmm. publishing money check and I'd never had any money. And so I was like, it was the first time it didn't bother me to spend 80 bucks on something like
0: that.
1: So I bought him a bottle of that for his birthday and he was so floored. Not only that, he made us drink the damn thing right then and there.
0: (laughs) That's the best kind of gift then.
1: And that's my first time actually having scotch either, because I'd never cared about scotch and didn't know anything about it. And obviously it sounded like rich people drink, you know, and at the time I was like (laughs) anything but, but he, he, definitely wet my palate for that. And then by the time that our stay was over making the record and heading back, he's like, I brought you something, a gift uh from my cellar. Now I want you to take this home and I want you to like share this on special occasion. I was like, okay, cool. So I got the bottle. It's kind of old looking. <laughs> I was kind of like Steve Martin in The Jerk where it was like, what's up with this old yes. <laughs> wine?
2: <laughs> Bring me some fresh Bring wine. Some fresh wine. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, I love that quote. I was like, "This, this probably is just some old, crusty, shitty bottle. He doesn't want anymore because it's no good."
0: Oh God!
1: Took it home, and I remember the first thing I did, of course, was pop it open. Didn't even have wine glasses in the little like garage apartment I was squatting at. Uh, my girl and I sat there with solo cups, and we poured this wine. And, of course, you know, the cork crumbled. Yeah. And I was like, oh, man, I hope this is good. You know, I wonder if that means it's bad. I didn't know, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. We took the first sip of it, and it just blew us away. Like, it was just, oh, That's what, oh, this must be a nice bottle of wine, you know, because it was like all of a sudden it didn't drink like cough syrup and it drank like grape juice and was beautiful and awesome and got better with every pour, obviously, because it was still, you know, opening up. And uh, I looked it up. This was at the early stages of the internet too, because this was like- Oh God. 1998. And I looked it up and it was a Baron Lafitte Rothschild. Oh
2: my God. Oh no. Wow.
1: It was a uh, bottle of, well, what would that be? That would have been a- um, A first growth? Yeah. That's who the winemaker was. It was like a-
2: It's a Lafitte Rothschild. That's what it yeah. was. It's the Chateau. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. A,
0: yeah it's a it's that's a, a it's It a first was a Chateau Lafitte
1: Rothschild. Yes. And then we looked at the price for a bottle of it. Ooh. We like turned white. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's badass.
1: But it was so good. And after that, I had total respect for the game.
0: Well, well, if a 1980s Lafitte doesn't turn you, I'm not really sure what does. Nothing can.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. If, if you can't appreciate it after that, wine ain't for you.
0: Wow. That's so, an amazing story. Awesome.
1: Well, I was kind of ruined after that because then it was like, if you went out and bought that $9 bottle of Dodge or whatever, you're like, no, that's not going <laughs> to do it. You know, so uh, so obviously it was um, a harsh reality, but it was really cool thing to start pursuing and going and getting. Then we got into talking to our friends that were in the wine business and uh, and that, that had a lot more experience and started buying it wholesale from some of our friends that were at distribution business who were really well-versed in it. I had a friend who worked for the biggest distributor in uh, the Southeast. I, I believe it was Empire maybe or something, but uh, yeah, Empire it was a big one. Yeah. And, uh, and he was very, very knowledgeable and he got us set up with a reservation at uh, Charlie's Restaurant at French Laundry. I mean, it was, you know, the whole thing where- Wow. If, if you're not privy to it, you don't realize how lucky. You are to get to do it.
0: It's like Disney World for adults up here. It's it's pretty intense. How was your experience at French Laundry? Everybody, you know, I think that's a place that everyone's like, should I go? Is it worth it? You know, is and I think we all have our own experiences. But how was yours?
1: It's funny actually, uh, and it's a tale of caution for anybody because. Don't Ooh. go out and do like three tastings in the daytime, and then go do the like oh. three hour.
0: Oh yeah, no <laughs> at French
1: laundry. Don't do that. <laughs> I've
0: been happened? a
1: shining example of everything not to do when drinking. Yes, Chateau Lafitte Ross shot out of solo cups, the whole nine yards.
0: No, I think that is something to do. That's on it. That's on my checklist for sure.
1: Well, and then later, years later, seeing the movie Sideways uh, was hilarious because he's drinking that bottle of. Oh
0: yeah, he drinks the Petrus earlier in the movie yeah. he
1: was like he was like i'm not drinking a fucking merlot and it was because his ex girlfriend liked it or something and right. and then of yes. course he's sitting alone in a in a in a restaurant brown bagging that wine and drinking it out of styrofoam cup and
0: you know that changed the industry forever right it really did like that that movie like just screwed merlot into the ground it screwed merlot forever
1: and and obviously like duck corn merlot for a long time was
0: yes
1: my jam and and then i started you know i had to to think for myself after seeing that movie because i was like (laughs) i still like this stuff oh he had other reasons it was deep-seated issues why he didn't like it and then pinot noir sales went through the roof you know
0: that's oh, right,
1: yeah. Even hitching post Pinot, you know, was everywhere and stores everywhere after that. And and I'm guilty of buying lots of that uh, after that. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think it was probably um, the French laundry situation was, I would say by hour two, <laughs> I was face down <laughs> in my plate, oh, man. <laughs> falling asleep in mid-conversation. That's when I realized, I was like, okay, hot sun all day, tastings all day. No nap.
0: And I'm sure you weren't spitting, right? You weren't like spitting at these wineries. Like you were.
1: I'm not a this guy. (laughs) I don't keep a spit cup anywhere near me. So when I'm drink, when I'm having drinks, so.
2: So do you think that um, you influence some of the younger musicians around you? Do they look to you for wine advice?
1: It is funny. I do have people asking me, that are getting into it, you know, they'll be like, where's a good place to start? Mm-hmm. And then you don't want to offend and be like, oh, you got to go get a uh, bottle of, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's like a hundred dollars because right. that's, you can't assume everybody can and wants to spend a hundred dollars on a bottle of wine, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's been a bunch of them that have popped up that have been deals before they raised the price. Uh, I've turned a lot of people onto this one called Honata, which is out of uh, Oh, yeah. oh I love that. Santa, Santa Barbara. Or Santa
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt D's.
1: And man, I mean, they make some really pricey ones, but one of my favorites is not their really stupid pricey one. And not yet, anyway. And it's called Todos. And it was, uh, it's a friend of mine, uh, Shannon Doherty from. Yeah charmed and all that. And her and her husband Kurt, this was their favorite wine and we went out to eat with them and they were like, "Oh, man, you got to try this." And so that's always half the fun. It's like getting turned on to something by a friend. You know, you're always learning, just like in music. I mean, every time I produce a band or work on someone's record and they come in and they have a different skill set than the artist before them, I learn tricks and learn things from them constantly learning you know i mean there's no end to what you can learn about recording and music and production and songwriting style and playing and and things like that so it's just been a growing passion learning more and more about wines and and uh, getting turned on to good secrets uh before they before they blow up and
0: yeah, with so many friends in the industry, and then you know, also I, I, the roster of who you've worked with, there have been a few people in uh, in that list that have now gone on to make their own wines. You know, namely, Pink is a, is now making some amazing wines. Um, do you have any any interest in getting into the game yourself?
1: Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I see wh- I see how much work goes into it, and I realize you've got to be at a certain point in your life too, uh, where you have the time. Because the last thing I'd want to do is pawn it off on other people and just make it a vanity project where you use your name. Um,
0: Yeah, and Pink is very involved. She's like boots on the ground. Yeah.
1: She and I have done a lot of work on records together, and we've we've gone on a lot of vacations together. And I would say a lot of my love for wines, especially Super Tuscans, are from her because she is— extremely knowledgeable. And I remember her talking to me 15 years ago when we started working together, uh, that she was like, you know, I want to make my own wine one day. I want to be a sommelier. I want to like I want to get my license. I want to I want to go to France and learn and blah blah blah. And this was, you know, she was selling out stadiums then, but it's been a long process and a learning process. And obviously it's not a cheap process. Uh, you know, she Yeah, bought, no. Bought an incredible place that we've been to many times up there and and kind of gotten to taste firsthand some of their uh mm-hmm. some of their vintages that they're making and it's great. And it's actually, um, so impressive. I mean, she's, she is so knowledgeable and I I think I got a lot of my palette from, from her, Mm. Over the years. Really? Yeah, for sure. Cause we've been to we've been to France together. We've been to Italy together. We've been and she's always the one I trust we would always trust to do the ordering and the selection and extremely passionate about it. And that's one thing with her, she's all in on anything she does. There's no half-assing anything. So she's in the belly of the beast with it right now of like making wine full on.
0: Yeah. I
1: guess kind of a silver lining of with COVID and everything. Uh, that she's had nothing but time to concentrate fully on that. Yeah. On wine and family. And that's like, isn't that kind of, at the end of the day, all we really wish we had to do?
0: <laughs> we made our careers that, so
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we figured that one
1: out. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm very jealous.
2: <laughs> Are there any artists that you worked with that, You didn't expect to be in wine that ended up being super passionate about it?
1: Yes. So I've done several records for the band Train. Oh, yeah. Which uh, are out of the Bay Area. I've known Pat, the singer and songwriter, for years, for like 20 years. The whole time I knew him and the whole time I worked on records with him, he was not drinking. He would say how much he loved wines and how much he loved this and that, but he's like, oh, just, but I'm not drinking. And for whatever reasons it was, a lot of people, it's like health or a lot of people, it's just a conscious decision to go dry for a while or the rest of their lives. And I just assumed, you know, I was always going to be the one like, you know, when I was with him, he would be talking about wine, but not drinking it. And then um he started uh easing back into it. And the last few times we've worked together together it's been a blast because he and I have the same palette. So he was asking me ones Mm. I liked at the beginning. And I would tell him because I think he felt like he missed out on like what was good anymore. And so when I, when he was like, I think I'm going to start having drinks again, I'm going to start having wine again. He's like, give me a short list of what you like. And I sent him a list of what I was currently loving and easy to get because uh, it was, you know, some of the more popular brands, but the ones that are well, well respected for certain years. And he would do the same back to me now. And now they've got their own wines and wine club and, the, you know. It's crazy. It's funny.
0: That's awesome. Do you remember what was on that original list?
1: Sure. I think I turned him on to Cakebread Cab. I turned him on to uh, to Schaefer. He loved that. Other ones, like there was Mount Veeder, Heights, Sellers.
0: I mean, that's a great roster of classics and, yeah. and also like kind of a Diverse assortment, too. Camus,
1: things like that that are like, obviously, I know what his budget is already because I, I this guy's doing fine. So I'm not going to be insulting if I put these wines on there and, and he go to the store, you know, because he, he even said he was like, and don't worry about how much they cost. So I was like, OK. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, you know, I, I went down just a, a list of, you know, those are I don't want to say basic. Those are just more popular varietals, you know.
0: How are you feeling um, about managing the wine list now? I know you said you sort of deferred to uh, Pink when you guys were out to dinner but how are you feeling? Are you, are you like someone that defers to a Psalm?
1: No, I think so. And I'm not scared to let the Psalm at the restaurant pick for me if I tell them what I like, Mm -hmm. because I'm not so crazy discerning that I'm going to be snobby about it. I'll know if I liked it or didn't love it. There's obviously, I, I put a lot of trust in people that have put in the hours. Plus my palate is, it's wider, you know, than it ever was. So it's like, I mean, I've, I can appreciate a great Pinot. I can appreciate a, Good Chardonnay. I can appreciate a good Margot. Anything. I, I do know what what a good one and a bad one of those tastes like to myself,
2: though. You mm-hmm. know. Have you ever had a, a wine that has uh, reminded you of a type of music or a specific song?
1: Whew. Well, um, I would say normally it should, but the way I like to drink wine, I forget what's on the radio uh, when I'm drinking it. <laughs> that's good and I think I can associate one of my favorite trips of drinking those big super Tuscans in the south of France and in Italy with Alicia with Pink uh, that it obviously anytime I hear her music I think of that but also you know anytime I hear French music or, or good Italian music which I love then it definitely makes me in the mood for it you know yeah
0: well um, I want to talk a little bit about American Love Story because I I I watched it a couple nights ago and and it's a little bit of everything and and maybe you can explain it better than I can because I've heard you call it a concept album a rock opera I mean it's it's available to watch on YouTube and you're listening to it. So you're, it's a very sensory experience, but can you talk a little bit about that project and what inspired it?
1: Sure. I'll try not to be too long winded because it's a, it's a lot to unpack.
0: It's a lot. I know.
1: (laughs) It's okay. I, you know, a few years ago, I just was, um, very disturbed by the, uh, the increasing apparent racism and bigotry that was starting to just rear its head. It's always been there. Like Will Smith said, it's, it's always been there. It's just getting filmed now. And, um, Mm -hmm. and plus growing up in, Rural Georgia, I saw my fair share of it, and and not really caring in because it was sadly so normalized growing up. Mm-hmm. Really, when I saw the Charlottesville uh, protests happening uh, and those riots that broke out, I was like, oh okay, well this has not gone away and has not has not died off. And I just couldn't write anything else. I couldn't write songs about love or breakup or you know. This was new territory for me, and I knew it was going to be cracking open open a pretty big egg to start, you know, unloading all of my thoughts about growing up in, you know, the the hateful part of not not that George is the hateful part, but just focusing on the hateful part of America. Mm-hmm. I had this story starting to build, and I started writing songs that were not set out to be any sort of concept record or or a rock opera per se. It was more just. I had songs with a common theme and when I started sending them to my manager to listen to like the demos, he was like, oh, it sounds like you're making like a rock opera about this hate and racism and bigotry in America. And I was like, well, I never thought of it that way, but I guess I will now. So I started coming up with this storyline that was based, you know, it's all based on shit that I experienced growing up. Right. It became this whole story from front to back with characters that were all singing the songs from first person point of view, where you had Mm -hmm. like the protagonist that's the character in it, who is a very hate filled man, you know, a white, middle aged American man who just. I uh, was grown up in a in a household with a dad that taught bigotry and racism and fear of anyone not like them. And I knew that all too well, not, not that my father was that way at all. You know, it, it was just, um, there was plenty of people around. Let's just put it that way without, right. you know, naming names. I realized that this was, you know, some of my favorite storytellers are people like Randy Newman and Tom Waits and... Mm-hmm. And guys like that that are in music that are not afraid to be very awkward and very uncomfortable and confrontational lyrically. Uh, and Randy Newman had put out this record when I was a, probably only five or six years old called uh, Good Old Boys, which was some of the songs were sung through the perspective of a southern Alabama racist bigot. And it was pretty right. brutal to listen to the lyrics because if you're not privy to what's going on, you're like, why is Randy Newman saying that, you know? Right. Right. But I like that. And I like when people use their art to make people feel uncomfortable because that's art to me. Right. Again, I felt like I was getting too complicit and I was getting too desensitized musically. Like I just, you know, I didn't want to just write another love song just to write it if I didn't have anything to say anymore about it. And so I knew this would push some buttons in a good and a bad way if I did it, but yet I still wrote it and recorded it and sat on it and did nothing with it because I was wow. just too concerned about putting it out. I didn't know how to package it. I didn't know how to, like, let it be perceived. And um, mm-hmm. and a lot of people were there along the way to give me some good advice uh, that was outside of home, you know, like like my manager of telling me, you know, oh, man, you know, maybe come at it from this angle and this angle and that angle and blah, 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 and say this and say that. And, you know, I had some other people, like, uh, really carefully— listen to the uh, the original recordings of it and uh, tell me, you know, lyrically, oh man, you know, maybe you should think about giving more perspective from this character so it evens out mm. a little more and blah, blah, blah. You know, things I'm not thinking about because I've never done a damn concept record. I've never done a rock opera. Right. <laughs> right. I don't write plays and musicals and anything like that. So I don't think of it in the long form as far as all of the um, details and the minutia. And uh, so when I did it, I ended up basically... Sitting on it for a while, also wondering how the hell I was going to go out and play this live after having a fan base that's been coming to see me that want to hear concert favorites from the last 20 years or so of my catalog, so to speak. And... Then all of a sudden you're peppering in songs sung from the first person point of view of a racist, bigoted, you know,
0: right? you don't want
1: that to be taken out of context. And I didn't want to have to like just pepper it in and make excuses on the microphone. Okay. You know, blah, blah, blah. It just made more sense to say like, this probably should be played in its entirety somehow Mm -hmm. in one sitting. So people know the story and know what's going on. And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of what COVID uh, created a little divine intervention, you know, of the live music business has been canceled. No one's going out and doing big concerts anymore. Not right now, not for, not this year, but everybody's craving music and art because they're stuck Mm -hmm. at home. And so I was like, okay, I think this is maybe better time than ever to put this out. So I called it American Love Story. And I ended up finally getting a release date and put it out during the whole lockdown. And um, I was really, really, I've been really uh, surprised because I didn't know, you know, sure it lost several people, but as I like to say, fuck those people. Well, got, I think you,
0: you find your tribe, right? I
1: don't need those people in my life. And I was ready for cleansing. I was ready for like, I don't want people supporting me whatsoever that support any sort of, you know, systemic racism or, or bigotry or any sort of hate, you know, inequality. Like that's just not who I am. Right. Right. And raising my child to be so, it was resounding for the most part. It was resounding yeah. love, and people. I get messages from people all the time saying, "Man, I'm finally talking to my dad again, who's awful, you know, bigot, and blah blah blah." And we're like, we're you know, we're we're, we're communicating again. And a lot of messages from the LGBTQ community. Um, mm-hmm. I was worried it was going to be the opposite, yeah. but I've been very pleasantly relieved and surprised that people have been really finding a positive message in it. Because it is, it's it's a love story about hate. It's not a hate story about love, so.
0: Well, and I think authenticity always resonates, you know, no matter the circumstance, whether it's timely or, you know, at a time where emotions are not as heightened as they are perhaps now. But I think- Speaking your truth, cliche as it may sound, is always, uh, it's always relevant. It's always relevant. Uh, and it's, it's beautiful. There's
1: a lot of people that don't want to hear it because they would rather their artists just stick to singing songs that make them escape from reality. Right. That's not a reality for artists because artists are fucking human, you know? So right. art is to make people question things and feel uncomfortable sometimes. And so uh, I don't know if it's a work of art that I've made, but I feel like at least it's my best attempt at art.
0: <laughs> well, it's a contribution if nothing else. And and I, I appreciate it. I, I'm curious about the video component. Was that always, I mean, when you decided to to release it as as a full album, a continuous piece of art, was the video always part of that? Or was that something that came after?
1: I mean, I was hoping, and a lot of people, when they heard it, they said, well, the first thing they said was like, is this going to be like a musical? Are you going to make like a Mm -hmm. theatrical production of this? And and never would I have ever in a million years wanted or thought to do that. But it started crossing my mind. How can I do like an extremely like low-budget, you know, shoestring ragtag version of a live visual of this because I definitely go out and every time I do a record, I go tour on it. And I wanted to figure out a way to play this thing front to back and let the message be uh, visually taken in as well as audibly. Uh, And then that got wiped out with COVID. So obviously the first thing was like, can we figure out how to make like a mini-movie almost? Not like a... Mm -hmm. Obviously budgets for music videos don't really exist much anymore when you people back in the day used to spend as much on making a video as they did making a record for a year, Mm -hmm. and that doesn't happen anymore. So you're talking, you know, oh, how can we in a few thousand (laughs) dollars— Make a 45 minute video of every song front to back with characters and, you know, maybe no dialogue at all. Maybe just let it be a rock opera uh, where all the dialogue is in the lyrics. And um, these amazing kids, that's all I can call them because I'm, they're young enough to be my kids. <laughs> came in that were making music videos and just had a great eye and great vision. And they sent me this treatment that made me cry when I read it about how they would put this together as a 45 minute Basically it's a glorified music lyric video. Mm-hmm. A lot of times lyric videos are just the lyrics going across the bottom karaoke style with like only a couple of visuals. So they were able to put in a couple of very impactful visuals filmed with actors and everything for each song without it being an you know an insane production and budget and needing a million dollars to do it cuz you could have easily yeah, yeah. have made a movie out of it but it would have cost lots of money that doesn't exist. So So it was kind of cool. And I try to steer people to see that first before they listen to the record because...
0: Yeah, I I listened and watched that first and I loved the lyrics going across the screen. I thought that was just a really perfect way to highlight the message and make sure that you know you don't miss something um, and it allows for a more sensory experience.
1: Yeah, we decided to thank you, by the way. We decided at the last minute to make it a, you know, lyrics at the bottom because we felt like it would be more impactful and people would get more of the message if we did that. And also people do lyric videos for every song when they put it out now. Sometimes that's the only music video. Right. It made more sense just to do it and not. And now that kind of treats the album, you know, when you listen to the record now and you're only hearing it, instead of seeing it um, it makes maybe more sense because I know a lot of people put the record on and said like oh, I don't get it and a lot of times that's because they didn't <laughs> want to tell you they probably only listened to like 30 seconds of it and then cut the fucking thing right. off because people don't <laughs> right. uh, people don't listen to a 45 minute record in one sitting anymore hardly at all it's a tall order and that's one thing I was saying is I was scared to put it out because I didn't want to be so demanding and say like alright everybody here's a record that you have to listen to from front to back uninterrupted and in sequence so that you don't take the story out of context Right? you know like I didn't want to do that to people because it just seemed like a tall order. But when you have the visual yeah. aid of the video that we have of it on YouTube, it kind of treats itself like a mini movie and that's more impactful.
0: Yeah. And I think you set it up really poignantly with the, are we having a conversation and sort of manage expectations in that way so that people don't expect to have just a sound bite. You know, you're expected to sit down for a conversation and whether you're an active role in that or not, uh, and, and talk about some of the issues that you bring up.
1: That's right. And you know, it's weird. It's I've said like, there's a lot of people that just, when they put the record on and they just listen to a a song or 30 seconds of a song, they might end up not hearing what's going on in it and think that it's just a bunch of throwing daggers at people and accusing and de- being divisive mm-hmm. myself, which it's not. It's literally a record about stereotyping the stereotypes that are getting completely exploited by, by everyone right now against other people, cultures and religions and, you know, racism, everything. Having this record be sadly more relevant now than it was two years ago is mm. strange. I have to tell people that I did that two years ago, by the way. Don't think I just did this this week, you know?
0: Right. I think it speaks to the point that but we've been dealing with these issues for a long time. You mentioned something earlier, and it's funny, I was thinking of it when I was watching the video. I got to see American Idiot on Broadway many years ago when Green Day did it, and there was so much of what they did that I saw... Um, there was a through line in, in what you did. I wondered, and you touched on this, if perhaps this would ever make its way onto a stage so that an audience could experience it in real time. As, as we both know, there's nothing like quite like a live show that speaks to you in a different way.
1: Green Day sold millions and millions of records. So, and that record right. itself sold 10 million records. So, making a musical. Funding, budgets were no option, no limit. But I would like to make kind of like a a, a scrappy, even if it was a one-man show.
2: Mm-hmm. I would go. Yeah.
1: Doing something with it. That it could be a theatrical presentation for sure. And I worked with Green Day. Ironically, uh, I produced their last record uh, that came out right before COVID. You know, I had, had this record in the can for a long time. And the last thing I wanted to do was say like, hey, I've got a rock opera, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't exactly... That card on them, but but I can say that just from dealing with them on a socially conscious level yes. as humans, that it's inspiring, and it was definitely inspired me to finally put this out. Regardless of we never even talked about it while in the studio. Is just the the way that I saw this band base their whole career on not giving a rat's ass what anybody else thinks and telling people what they think, and plenty of blowback, obviously, and repercussions from it. But that's what we like to say is punk as hell,
2: you know. Yeah. (laughs) So you've mentioned some absolutely amazing and famous artists that you've worked with, but are there any musicians that you, you know, would like to share a glass of wine with that you haven't had the opportunity to?
1: Probably. I mean, there's plenty of them I would love to, uh, that I haven't worked with, uh, there's, you know, I mean, geez, I, yeah. but then again, I don't know if these people even drink. <laughs> I guess that's the, t- <laughs> I mean, yes, what I, and, and sadly, the ones I would love to have shared a glass of wine with were are, are no longer here because it seems like in droves, all of my heroes yeah. Uh, have been dying off. Like,
0: Well, I think this can be like an alive or dead conversation. Yeah, dead or alive. Yeah.
1: I would have said Prince, but I know Prince didn't drink. But, um, you know, David Bowie would have been one of my favorites, I think. Oh, yeah. I would love to have sat and picked his brain about so much. And Tom Petty. Tom Petty, I would love to like, I'd love to smoke pot and drink wine with him. That would have been so
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> what wine would you have brought to that table?
1: Um, I'm not sure. I probably would bring a... Uh, one of my favorites right now is that Honada Todos. Mm. I'm buying it left and right at the grocery store. It, it's always gone now. So that's good. I'd probably bring him a bottle of that and say, let me talk to you about life, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, we uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about life and wine and uh, and American love story and all the you know the great things that you're doing right now. So uh,
2: yeah, I like having new wine buddies. Yeah, we do too. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, and I will say, had uh, Carlo Mondavi for you. Please
1: do, I love him. He is awesome. Well,
0: thank you so much for thank taking you. the time, and uh, hope to see you up in Napa soon.
1: Well, let's plan on it.
0: Vanessa, I think we need to have more musicians on the podcast.
2: What a breath of fresh air. <laughs> well, you know, I would be all for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not just a breath of fresh air, but like, seems like a guy I just want to hang out with, like a nice dude. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't
0: agree more. He seems like a great guy, someone that clearly loves wine, but also is not afraid of what vessel to put it in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Oh my god, that's a solo cup or a wine glass. Although it sounds like he's kind of like it's a cringe worthy story for him now. I don't think it should be. I think it's kind of badass, frankly.
2: I think all these stories are, are great. I mean, everyone has one of those, right? So
0: Oh, for sure. For Proudly. sure. That, that first like great bottle of wine that you have that you had no idea how expensive it was or what you were drinking, like that's just such a perfect story. Right.
2: And you like made sangria with it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think this is good.
0: Um no, he he was wonderful. I can't wait to uh to crack a bottle in a solo cup with him at some point in the future. Um Last drops. What were your takeaways for the Faimon Las Piedras
2: Vineyard and the Dumas Chardonnay? I feel like both of these showed so well. They're so classic. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I love a great Chardonnay. And of course, I mean, Faimon. you know, we love Benoit. And so Benny, 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 Benny. So great to see his his work on display. So, yeah, yeah they were you know, hard to choose a favorite today, um, not to dodge the question, but I mean, they're they're so different and both so delicious.
0: Yeah. Well, I love that these are both sort of hedonistic wines, but also have this really great balance and sense of grace. And when I talk to people who are like, you know, I like big and brash, but I don't like it to be like so in your face. Like These are the two kinds of wines that I think of when I think about giving you everything that you want without it being so overwhelming. And I think Dumal and Faymon, you know, really, really well-made, big in your face, but pull back a little bit as well. So I was happy to drink both of them. I'm glad that we had a red and a white. That's exciting. We don't I always
2: know. have that. Oh, We don't always have that. Yeah. Yeah. Nice change of pace.
0: Well, you know, if I wanted to have more of that in my own particular cellar, where could I find said (laughs) bottles? You
2: could find it at WineAccess.com. And then, of course, if you'd like to engage with us on social, we're on Instagram at wineaccess and on Facebook at The Wine Access Experience.
0: Heck yes. And if you want to see more things about this podcast, namely a little sneak peek of who's coming up, some video clips of these shows, and just some all-around fun podcasts. backstories of of how these things come to be. You can follow us on Instagram at Wine Access Unfiltered or on Twitter at Wine Access Pod. And as always, we so appreciate you all listening. This is such a great treat for us. And if you're enjoying what you're listening to, we would appreciate a subscribe and a review. Uh, It really, really helps us out and helps other people to find the podcast to build a bigger, broader, more diverse, and delicious wine drinking and podcast listening community. So there you go. Uh, Any final remarks? I think you said it all. (laughs) All right. Well, always a pleasure, Vanessa. Enjoy the wines tonight with uh, whatever you're eating, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. (laughs) Cheers.
2: Cheers.